Okay, so uh, the quartet of air was Bert Norton. Then you probably worked out with those earthy feet and the dancers we were in earth. And now we move uh, into water. In fact, we're going to be awash uh, with water in the drought <coughs> salvages, as you pronounce it. Uh, this was a, it's a small group of rocks, uh, as he explains, uh, off the coast of Cape Ann in Massachusetts. It's where he spent uh, his summers as a child. And it's very much based uh, around the idea that these rocks that lie submerged are both helpful to you in that you can direct your course from them. You won't get lost if you keep them in view. But also, of course, you crash into them, you're a goner. So uh, it's, uh, they demand a right response, shall we say, from you. So uh, let's look at this water. You might think we're going to be shown the great sort of oceanic mystery right at the beginning, a lovely sea, Mediterranean blue. No, it's a dirty old river, a muddy river, uh, maybe the Mississippi, which of course he would have known, uh, maybe the Thames, we don't know. I do not know much about gods. What? <laughs> Beg to differ there, I think. But I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god. Sullen, untamed, and intractable, patient to some degree. I wondered when I read that whether that's actually how most of us view God. <laughs> Sullen, untamed, intractable, patient to some degree. <laughs> At first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy as a conveyor of commerce then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges the problem once solved the brown god is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities ever however implacable so we are confident in the fact that we can control this river we can do our commerce up and down it we can build bridges over it it's under our control, but it is implacable. The river, as it were, is not impressed <laughs> with us. It's uh, still there, and it has a force of its own. <coughs> Keeping his seasons and rages, destroyer, reminder of what men choose to forget. There's a key line, I think. Reminder of what men choose to forget, unhonoured, unpropitiated by worshippers of the machine. This uh, iron age that we now live in again, a technical age. R.S. Thomas uses that, of course, that uh, phrase, the machine, as, uh, as who we are these days. But there is the river nevertheless, waiting, watching, and waiting. And the river, like time itself, uh, has a rhythm present in the nursery bedroom so time governs our childhood there it is in the Alianthus in spring presumably in the smell of grapes in autumn and the evening circle in the winter gaslight winter there is the river there is the river of time and the river is within us we're subject to the sovereignty of passing time 
And no matter how much we try and use time for our commerce or try to build bridges across it, there it is. And then he, he moves off from the river but to the sea. And the sea, he says, is the land's edge. Even granite is eaten into by the sea. The hardest, hardest uh, thing that you can think of is being eroded by this sea. The beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. And here we have my old horseshoe crab. <laughs> he wondered when he was going to make his appearance. Here he is. The starfish, the horseshoe crab. The, one of the most ancient uh, life forms, the whale's backbone, the pools where it offers to our curiosity, the more delicate algae and the sea anemone. It tosses up our losses. The torn seine, which is a net, the shattered lobster pot, the broken oar, and the gear of foreign dead men. <coughs> so, you know, these, the gear breaks as the men go into the dark, as it were. This sea, and I, I think here the sea again is very much uh, reminiscent of, of eternity. It's eating, it's playing on our foundations all the time. The sea has many voices, many gods and many voices. This ocean of eternity is always touching our land. It's washing over it, washing over it. The salt is on the briar rose. The fog is in the fir trees. It's coming into our land. <coughs> the sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices often together heard. The wine in the rigging. I love It's so evocative, this. You can almost start a sort of Sunday night murder mystery with this. The wine in the rigging. The menace, caress of wave that breaks on water. The distant rote in the granite teeth. And the wailing warning. Warning. From the approaching headland are all sea voices. And then, the heaving groan around it homewards and the seagull, and under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell <coughs> measures time, not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell. Well, you know you're done, of course. Uh, there it is, the bell that tolls for us. But this is not what the bell's doing here. It is not tolling our time. We like our time. We, we manage our time. We put it into little sections. And we we, we uh, order our lives through it. I'm ordering this talk through it, even now. That's us in control of time. This is time in control of us. <laughs> this is the other time that the bell is tolling. And it's unhurried ground swell. It's coming from this eternity. This is what's moving this bell. And this bell, like those rocks, is both a warning and a summons. And it demands a response from you. This is the time... Uh, that is eternal and it's saying listen to me listen to me here it is tolling away a time older than the time of chronometers older than time counted by anxious worried women lying awake who are these women 
Sailors' wives. Sailors' wives, yes. The, 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 the schooners have gone out, and apparently in this area they often would be away for up to three years. So wives lying at home, I love this because any of you who have insomnia occasionally will think this is pretty accurate, calculating the future, trying to unweave, unwind, unravel, and piece together the past and the future between midnight and dawn, when the past is all deception, the future futureless, before the morning watch when time stops and time is never-ending, and the ground swell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. It's wonderful. Here is the bell, but as I say, it's not just of our time. So, the river, the ocean, uh, the time, the eternal, the warning and the summons, the invitation to hear it. Then we move into section two, rather despairing that this ceaseless threat of the river and the sea, which is there, never ends. But there is a movement then in section two where we actually see that we have to self-surrender to this eternal, um, this manifest eternal in time. We have to somehow hear it. It's summoning us. We need to respond. We need to surrender to it. So in section two, just about, so about six lines in, it says, where is there an end to the drifting wreckage? The prayer of the bone on the beach. What, what would a bone's prayer be? Where I come from. Where I come from, yeah. What was my beginning? Or, this is not what I used to be. <laughs> Give me a resting place somewhere. Give me a resting place, yeah. Um, I'm not what I was. I'm dry and I'm desiccated. There's a bones prayer, maybe. The unprayable prayer at the calamitous annunciation. Now here this word breaks in. We have all this going on. All this You can feel the heaviness in you as we're talking about it almost. And then all of a sudden something breaks in an annunciation. It has a small a, so perhaps we're not necessarily thinking about the annunciation yet. But there it is. Why is it calamitous? A calamity. Hmm? Why? Because <coughs> it, take, it takes us from the spiritual into the, real, the reality, and the reality is moving around you all the time and it's a sort of calamitous type of reality. Okay, so it's sort of collapsing a lot of what you've been building your life on. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and in a sense, Mary's life, when she had the Annunciation, had to refigure. <laughs> it was a calamity in some senses. Um, in a sense, I think, the, this whole poem, these four movements, as it were, is an annunciation summoning us to our end tell us and I think that's what the annunciation of Mary is about isn't it 
she was summoned to her end, her purpose, her destiny. And this is what this is doing. The bell uh, and this poem is summoning us to our end, which is our beginning. Okay. So that means the end of silly distractions. One of the phrases I didn't look at with you, but I love, is when he talks about us being this twittering world. <laughs> or shall we say today, this tweeting world. <laughs> okay, so this is the enunciation that ruptures that. It ruptures it. There is no end but addition, the trailing consequence of further days and hours while emotion takes to itself the emotionless years of living among the breakage of what was believed in as the most reliable and therefore the fittest for renunciation. So all those things that you thought were the most reliable, your preferences, your friends, your money, your career, your health, your family, all those things, hmm, rethink <coughs> this rupturing enunciation. There is the final addition, he says, the failing pride or resentment at failing powers. The old age breaking in again here. That, that resentment when they pull out the bedpan. Yes. The unattached devotion which might pass for devotionless in a drifting boat with a slow leakage. <laughs> the silent listening to the undeniable clamour of the bell of the last enunciation. Well, feeling good? <laughs> yes, in some ways, because I was saying to somebody outside, what's extraordinary going on here, I think, is this, I'm, I'm assuming that you are either of Christian faith or faith or intrigued by it or drawn to it, this, this language is voicing things of, of which we're pursuing. This is our ground, this is what we're about. But it is done in a completely new language. That is, in many ways, read by, as you were saying, a secular world, as, as by people of faith. There is no cliché going on here. Uh, and there's very little religious vocabulary. But my goodness me, don't you feel that you're going just a little bit deeper? Um, so, then it says... There is no end of it, the voiceless wailing. No end to the withering of withered flowers, to the movement of pain that is painless and motionless, to the drift of the sea and the drifting wreckage, the bones prayer to death its God, only the hardly, barely prayable prayer of the one Annunciation. With a capital A. With a capital A. Aha! we feel all of a sudden we are moving into the, the Christian narrative. <coughs> of course, the Annunciation, uh, the, the fiat mihi, be it unto me according to your word. Mm -hmm. The eternal word that we heard about in John. Be it unto me according to your word. Let it be done in me. She's been calling, called to her end. Then, it seems, as one becomes older, 
But the past has another pattern and ceases to be a mere sequence or even development. The latter a partial fallacy encouraged by superficial notions of evolution, which becomes in the popular mind a means of disowning the past. This is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. <laughs> you think because it's new, it's better. Because it's new, it's got more street cred or is uh, original. Um, the Germans have a wonderful word, which we might remind ourselves of at this point, Schlimmwässerung, an improvement that makes things worse. <laughs> it's not always the case, but we do have a very strong sense of chronological snobbery. And then you have the moments of happiness, not the sense of well-being, fruition, fulfillment, security or affection, or even a very good dinner but the sudden illumination. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. So a life has these fugitive moments of illumination, of eternity's hem brushing us, and you have that, but you miss the meaning, because you're distracted, you're in another place, but, and this is, we're going to hear hints and guesses of his, his phrase. The point about the hints and guesses of these experiences, these sudden illuminations, this when the sea of eternity just goes up a little bit onto your beach and then comes back again. Those hints and guesses are reliable. So those people who tell you that it's all in the mind, that it's chemistry gone haywire, that it's some sort of fearful longing, you know, it's part of your evolutionary uh, desire for a father God and all those sort of things. Eliot says, if anything is true, if anything is summoning your humanity, it's those hints and guesses. That's the reality. They are most reliable you will often miss the meaning. But they are there. Approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. And he says, I have said before that the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations. Not forgetting something that is probably quite ineffable. You can't talk about it. Somebody once asked my uh, philosophy tutor, Keith Ward, what does it mean to say God's ineffable? And he said, oh, it's quite simple, God can't be effed. <laughs> <laughs> it actually means you can't describe uh, the experience. Um, I think the person believed him, actually. <laughs> um, we're moving on to section three. Uh, just a final comment about those rocks. Um, let's just look at, sorry, at the end of two. The bitter apple and the bite in the apple and the ragged rock in the restless waters, waves wash over it, fogs conceal it. On a halcyon day, it is merely a monument in navigable weather. It is always a sea mark to lay a course by, but in the sombre season, 
or the sudden fury is what it always was. So you can navigate your life, your journey, your sea voyage around these. You can look at them like a little monument. Oh, aren't they pretty? Look at those little rocks. But those nice rocks might one day take their revenge. And that's the truth. Then, section three. And I often think in section three, the, the, the teaching of Jesus that to do not be anxious about your life is somewhere lurking. I sometimes wonder if that is what Krishna meant, among other things, or one way of putting the same thing, that the future is a faded song. Um, Krishna, by the way, exhorts the warrior, Arjuna, to acquire disinterestedness, detachment. Um, and it's interesting here that the future is a faded song. Um, a royal rose, like the houses of York and Lancaster. A lavender spray, something you place in the drawer to keep things fresh. Uh, of wistful regret for those who are not yet here to regret. Pressed between yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened. And the way up, aha, is the way down. The way forward is the way back. You cannot face it steadily, but this thing is sure that time is no healer, the patient is no longer here. When the train starts and the passengers are settled to fruit, periodicals and business letters, and those who saw them off have left the platform, their faces relax from grief into relief to the sleepy rhythm of a hundred hours. Fair forward travellers, not escaping from the past into different lives or into any future, you are not the same people who left that station or who will arrive at any terminus. Bedding down into this... When you're travelling on a train, you are both travelling, you're journeying, but actually you're still, you're just sitting there. So you think that you're still and settled, you've got your periodical and your fruit, but actually you're on the move, <laughs> whether you like it or not. So you are both a strange mixture of movement and non-movement. This fair forward is very important to this section. Um, fair, of course, means to travel. So farewell actually means travel well, something you say to somebody you say goodbye to. Farewell, travel well. But he doesn't say farewell. He says fair forward. Travel forward to your end. Again, to your um, purpose. Try to gain the perspective to which the entirety of this poem is summoning you. You are a passenger, not active, yet active. You are in this stream of time, but you also have a will. And of course, you see that will very much, and the gentleman over here mentioned it earlier. It says here, and the time of death is every moment. This infinite significance in the moment of death. But what he's saying is you also need to die to so much of what you are living with now if you're to hear this bell properly. So fare forward to your end. He says, O voyagers, O seamen, 
you who come to, came to port, and you whose bodies will suffer the trial and judgment of the sea, or whatever event, this is your real destination. So Krishna, as when he admonished Arjuna on the field of battle, not farewell. Don't, don't, don't go for comfort. Don't just say, oh, yeah, life's, life's, life's fine. Thanks. Fare forward, voyagers. Fare forward. You have a destination. You have a destiny. Four, here's the little lyrical interlude. And it's a lyrical prayer to Mary. Lady whose shrine stands on the promontory. Wonderful in the, in the face of what we've just been talking about. The ships come to grief on the rocks between the promontories. So whose shrine stands on the promontory, pray for all those who are in ships, those whose business has to do with fish, and those concerned with every lawful traffic, and those who conduct them. Repeat a prayer also on behalf of women who have seen their sons or husbands setting forth and not returning. Filia del tuo filio, daughter of your son. This is an expression of Dante. He called Mary the, uh, the daughter of your son. Queen of heaven. Also pray for those who were in ships and ended their voyage on the sand, in the sea's lips, or in the dark throat which will not reject them, or wherever cannot reach them the sound of the sea bells, perpetual angelus. You know what the angelus is? Hail Mary, full of grace. What is it a prayer based around? The the Annunciation. Annunciation, yes. Elizabeth, Elizabeth's prayer. Incarnation. It's a prayer reminding us of the incarnation. And this is where we're going towards incarnation. The, uh, the intersection of the timeless with time. And of course, the Angelus ends, as the Hail Mary does, with pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Okay. Gosh. <coughs> Which then leads us into the last section. I love this. So here we are. We've, we've got these intimations of immortality. We have these moments of illumination. Where, as I said, the hem of eternity is brushing you. You have that experience. You may miss the meaning, but you have the experience. And what do we do to pursue this more? Well, we communicate with Mars converse with spirits, report the behavior of the sea monster. We describe the horoscope. Haruspicate. Do you know what that means? Look at entrails. Yes, look into sheep's guts. Or scry, that is describe, peer into things. Observe disease in signatures. I look at your writing to see who you really are and what you want. Evoke biography from the wrinkles of the palm. And tragedy from fingers. Looking at your fingers. We're trying to escape history, escape time. To look into the future as if we controlled it and can see it. Release omens by sortilage. What's that? Casting lots. Tea leaves. <laughs> Riddle the inevitable with playing cards. Fiddle with pentagrams. Those are um, figures that were thought to be uh, holding secrets. 
or barbituric acids, LSD, uh, pre-conscious terrors, exploring the womb or tomb or dreams, got Freud and Jung. All these are usual pastimes, he said, pastimes and drugs and features of the press and always will be, some of them especially when there is distress of nations, when you really are frightened. And of course, this was written right in the middle of the Blitz. Uh, London was being bombed as he wrote this so this was such a time a time of anxiety when there is distress of nations and perplexity whether on the shores of Asia or in the Edgware Road men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension and then but to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardour and selflessness and self-surrender. So, taking up your cross again, being the marching orders. Um, not an occupation... It, so it's not, it's not something we set about. We get a job and we you know, put our mind to it. This is something given and taken. It sounds like the operation of grace. Grace, I always say, is, is when something is given more than you deserve. And, and, uh, uh, giving more than is your duty and receiving more than you deserve. So it's not something that you control. It's rational or an occupation. Then he says, for most of us, there is only the unattended moment. The moment in and out of time, the distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight. The wild time unseen, that's midnight, uh, midsummer night's dream, the wild time. Or the winter lightning, or the waterfall, or music heard so deeply that it's not heard at all. But you are the music while the music lasts. These are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses, and the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. So these fleeting moments, these hints and guesses, they're not illusionary. Trust them. They are messages of the most urgent importance. But the rest is prayer, of course, George Herbert said prayer is about something being understood. <laughs> prayer, observance, that's observing yourself as well as anything else, which means confession, which means discipline, which means thinking and action. In other words, there's no shortcut. <laughs> this is not something you can look in tea leaves about. This is a lifetime's death in love. You're pulling the rug <coughs> under the chair of your mind and letting it fall into love. It's quite a difficult thing to do. The hint half guessed, the gift half understood <coughs> is incarnation. Big I. The word was incarnate because that's what the word does. 
incarnates, comes into the human realm. Here, the impossible union of spheres of existence is actual. Here, the past and future are conquered and reconciled, where action were otherwise movement of that which is only moved and has in it no source of movement. So our efforts in the twittering world come from our resources, but here is incarnation. And it says, and the right action is freedom from past and future also. And he ends like this. For most of us, this is the aim never here to be realized, who are only undefeated because we've gone on trying. We, content at the last, if our temporal reversion nourish, not too far from the yew tree, the life of significant soil. So, this is our aim. This is where we're summoned. We know we have reliable moments that we're to pursue. If we're not distracted, we don't miss the meaning. They're there. We will not be defeated if we go on trying. That's what faith is. We, content at the last, we will be content. Our life will be laid down, content. If our temporal reversion, that's our death and decomposition, where our, our timeliness is being reversed into nothing, if it nourish, not too far from the yew tree, that's of course um, always in a graveyard, the yew tree, the life of significant soil. The soil that bears the whole record of the human story. Graveyards do that. They record the whole story of human history.